Welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast, a podcast where we explore the role of mindfulness and related topics in medicine, created and produced by medical learners at McGill University. Hello everyone, my name is Zoe O'Neill and I'm a second year medical student at McGill. I am joined today by my colleague Ashkan Salihi, who is also a second year medical student at McGill, and Dr. Golda, who is a family and palliative care physician and the head of palliative care services at Mount Sinai in Montreal, Quebec. She is also the program director for palliative care at McGill. Today, we're going to be talking about coping with grief and maintaining wellness for both our patients and for ourselves. So thank you so much for joining us today from all the way up north, Dr. Golda. My pleasure. So just to get started, can you describe for us and our listeners what you do professionally at McGill and at Mount Sinai? So I've been doing palliative medicine for over 22, 23 years now. Um, I started off by doing part-time palliative medicine and part-time family medicine. Then in 2003, I uh, stopped working and did a whole year of residency again, but this time uh, concentrating on palliative medicine. And ever since 2003, it's been palliative medicine only. I did some consult work at McGill, at the Montreal General Hospital many years ago. At Mount Sinai, I have the palliative care unit which has 15 beds, but we also have a home care service where we work in conjunction with the CLSC services to help patients and their families get the palliative care that they need uh, for as long as possible. And sometimes they're able to stay home all the way till their very last breath. Occasionally, we have to have some of those patients come onto the palliative care unit. And what's cool at Mount Sinai is we can go straight from home to a palliative care bed rather than transit through the emergency room, which is a horrible place to be for anybody, never mind for somebody who's in their last days or weeks of life. So there's been that part of it. Um, we have a lot of students and residents who come and rotate uh, at Mount Sinai Hospital. That's a lot of fun because we're happy to have our uh, future colleagues get to understand what palliative medicine is, try to get them to feel a little bit more knowledgeable in some of the basic um, palliative medicine so that when they become residents or staff themselves, they can feel comfortable taking care of patients who may be nearing end of life. And then there's the whole part of being program director. I was program director for palliative medicine many years ago uh, from 2007 to 2014. And then I picked it up again just before the pandemic in 2019. And that's been a lot of fun. It involves overlooking the undergraduate palliative medicine uh, curriculum but as well um, making sure that the residents who are wanting to do an extra year of training get uh, the best kind of experience possible, um, helping them grow and develop so that they can eventually be colleagues. So that's in a nutshell. 
No, it's amazing. It sounds like you wear so many different hats. And I think for us as students, it's always really interesting to find out what your path was, how you ended up where you are today. So as a student, was there something in particular that drew you to family medicine and then drew you more specifically into palliative care? So family medicine is a beautiful specialty where you have to know pretty much everything. Now you can't be an expert in everything, uh, but you have to be able to take care of little babies all the way into patients who are elderly and may even be nearing end of life. And one of the things that's amazing about family medicine is the possibility of looking at that person in a more global aspect rather than in a more specific okay, this is their lung problem, and I'm just going to take care of their lung problem, or this is their diabetes, etc. So you're looking at the person and their, their whole entire person that they are. Um, hopefully, if you have a great memory, and the rest of their family is also seeing you, you get to know their whole family context, their social context. And we know that that has a huge influence on the overall health of individuals. And also the whole prevention part. I mean, who else does prevention in medicine apart from the family physicians? So it's about making sure that you're getting them tested for, you know, uh, trying to pick up on cancers early, trying to make sure that their overall lifestyle is as good as possible so that they can stay healthy, um, trying to manage um, progressive illnesses earlier on so that they hopefully don't develop complications from their progressive illness. So this is the kind of medicine that just looks at the whole individual, even before illness develops and trying to prevent it. And there's really nothing else in medicine that actually does this. So that's amazing. On the other hand, it's a little scary because you really do need to know pretty much everything. Again, not, not as an expert, but as the, you know, as things keep on evolving, you, you need to keep up with so many different aspects of medicine. So it's a bit scary, but it's also a bit an adventure and exciting and challenging. And, and that's a beautiful aspect as well that we, you know, can't deny about family medicine. So when you're ready to take on that challenge, you know, kudos to you. What I felt, though, with family medicine is that I wish I could have done more. I wish I could have prevented more illness. I wish I could have prevented complications more than what I was already doing and get to know that family better, get to know that whole person better. Because sometimes also in a busy clinic, you, you don't have that much time. You get to know your patient over time, but not, um, you know, you, you can't spend an hour with your patient every time they come and see you. So what was attractive about palliative medicine is that I could spend the time. I, I kind of call palliative medicine as the luxury <laughs> medicine, the Cadillac of medicine, I can spend the time 
and also overtime. So I can spend maybe an hour, an hour and a half, sometimes even two hours when I'm going into the home with that one person and their family, get to know their context, get to know what's important to them, try to understand what is of value to them still at this time. And I find that what I, when I do something to help them with their symptom, it's almost like doing surgery. You, you, you do something and then an hour later, there might be some improvement a day later, a week later, but it's pretty quick. And so those are different aspects of getting to know that whole individual plus the family, because palliative medicine is not just about the individual patient, but it's also about their family and how we can best support them. That is actually the extreme of, of family medicine in my books. And seeing the, the, the global person, again, just like what we do in, in family medicine, but this is um, an even more extreme, intense kind of family medicine, which was extremely attractive to me and has kept me going over the years. So that would be that in a nutshell, <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I can appreciate this idea of time as a luxury. And I'm sure that people who are listening to this, who are you know, involved in patient care can appreciate that, that aspect of just how little time we feel we have with patients and how much more time we wish we could dedicate to them. So I realize we've already started using this word palliative care, and there are lots of different definitions of what palliative care is, and also lots of misconceptions, not only amongst healthcare providers, but also amongst patients as well. So just to make sure that we're all on the same page, can you give us a definition of palliative care and maybe how you describe it to patients as well when you're introducing it, which I'm sure is always a super sensitive conversation? Yeah, so certainly... From where I'm working, I, I don't see patients before they come to palliative medicine. I think my colleagues on consult uh, or in outpatient clinics have a, um, a bigger uh, job to do there with trying to correct a lot of misconceptions about what palliative medicine is. To me and to my colleagues, it's really about improving on quality of life. And we focus on life. Palliative medicine is about life and how our patients will be able to live what time they have ahead as fully as possible. In fact, we sometimes quote this one article that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2010 about patients who all had advanced lung cancer. And half of them were randomized to getting the usual care, which was a whole lot of oncological follow-up, maybe seeing their family physician as well. The other half had the same kind of care, plus got followed up by palliative medicine. And what's surprising about the outcome of that study is that the, the group of patients that got early palliative medicine, plus, you know, the usual care, oncology, radiation oncology, family medicine, et cetera. That group that got early palliative medicine had less problems with um, symptoms. They had less anxiety. 
they had less depression. And on average, they actually lived an extra three months longer. So it's not about making patients get to their end of life faster. It's not. When medications are dosed properly, um, when symptoms are well controlled, when, when side effects are minimized, patients' quality of life improve to the point that they can actually live more and more including in terms of time. So it is something that a lot of patients don't understand. Families also um, don't understand. Um, but you were right when you were saying healthcare providers, you know, when I started medicine, palliative medicine barely existed. I mean, it existed, but it was certainly not something that was well understood. In my, I went to University of Montreal, and at University of Montreal, back in the 90s, there was nothing in the curriculum about palliative medicine. So a lot of doctors from my generation don't understand what palliative care now means. And, and palliative medicine has evolved. Initially, back in the late 60s and early 70s, it was really about end of life. Now we know that when we start palliative medicine earlier on, and not just for cancer patients, but for patients who have all kinds of illnesses that will progress and eventually, unfortunately, take the patient's life. When we start palliative medicine, that supportive care earlier on, all these people have much better outcomes. There's also less utilization of chemotherapy, um, of all kinds of more uh, advanced curative intent treatments, which unfortunately don't really necessarily bring about a cure, might prolong a little bit, but more often than not, when these treatments are given to people who are nearing their end of life, it actually brings about more burden because patients need to go into the hospital more because they have more side effects, etc. So with palliative medicine, when you can actually bring about better symptom management and a better understanding of, okay, what is important to you as an individual and as a family, what do you wish for at this point? And how can we help you get to these goals and objectives that you have? Then we can guide the patient with respect to what treatments are best suited for them at that point. Yeah, I think that's such a wonderful definition of palliative care. And I think Ash and I are both quite lucky to be able to sit down and have these conversations with someone like yourself. And also that it's so incorporated into the, the curriculum at McGill now. We will enter into practice uh, with, with quite a, a rounded understanding of what palliative care is and that it, it isn't just about end of life, but it can also be about banding traditional disease models and, and delivering that concurrently with even life prolonging care, as you kind of described. But just considering how intensely vulnerable uh, patients and their loved ones are during palliative care processes and how emotionally charged our relationship with mortality can be, I'm going to hand it over to Ash to ask a few questions about personal wellness, especially within the context of providing palliative care. So we were wondering, why is personal wellness important in medicine? And can you comment on its role when providing palliative care? 
So we have to realize that when we are providing any kind of uh, medical care, the majority of the time, patients don't come to see their doctors because they're feeling great. <laughs> they're usually suffering with some kind of uh, discomfort, whether it be physical or psychological. And as physicians, we are faced with a lot of suffering. And we know also the mind, the body, all of that um, is going to have, uh, you know, is interconnected. And so when patients do come with a physical discomfort, there might also be a lot of anxiety and, and maybe even depressive symptoms if some of their uh, function is being limited by some of their symptoms. So we are a recipient of a lot of suffering. And I think we can provide the best kind of medicine, the best kind of care to our patients when we are able to receive all that suffering, but also not be so impacted by that suffering that we become suffering individuals as well. Because if we become suffering individuals as physicians, we won't be in the best place to be able to help those people, those individuals coming to see us. So we need to stay well. And it's a very, very fine balance. The fine balance being we need to protect ourselves from the suffering, but at the same time, we can't become robots. When we become um, untouched by the suffering that we are witnessing, we're probably not going to be having as much impact on our patient. One of the things I've seen over time is that when the patient genuinely feels that we care about them, not just care for them, but care about them, that trusting relationship that we develop with them has a huge impact on whatever we'll do with them. They are going to trust us to start medications. We know that there's a little placebo effect also in our treatments. So if they believe in what we're doing for them is going to be helpful, that placebo effect can also kick in and that's okay. <laughs> we need a little placebo. They will be more willing to, to listen to our advice, to our guidance. So we really need to be able to reach that individual in front of us by being genuinely caring. But like I said, if we become recipients of so much suffering, we might be burnt out. And sometimes when we become burnt out, we kind of shut down. We have such a huge wall to protect us around us that the patient no longer feels that we care about them. And so then we, we lose on that patient-doctor relationship. And, and we won't be good physicians for them. We won't be good physicians, period. When we become so burnt out and so uncaring, we lose a lot also in the enjoyment of this career. We're so lucky to be able to be physicians who can help so many people. And there is a joy in being able to come to work. But when you lose that joy, when you become down, when you become less functional, it's going to impact us at work, but it can also impact us in our 
family life and our relationships with friends. And it's, it's just overall, we, we just can't keep on going that way. So it's the very delicate balance of um, how to be resilient. We talk a lot about resilience, how to be resilient as a physician when we are recipients of so much suffering and at the same time be able to keep on going and still enjoying the work that we're doing because it's it's so gratifying to do this job but when you become burnt out you you don't have that anymore i guess palliative medicine there's definitely a lot of suffering there as much as we can help patients feel better eventually people get closer to end of life and eventually die. And we accompany that person, we accompany their family members. And so we are faced with a lot of pain. There's a lot of it. Now, one of the beautiful things about being in a palliative care setting is that we are a team of people. And it's an interdisciplinary team. So we have doctors, yes, nurses, orderlies, we have social workers, we have art therapists, music therapists, we have psychologists, we have physiotherapy, occupational therapy, and we can all work together to be able to support that patient and help that patient and their family reach their goals and try to improve on their quality of life but we're also there for each other. So we can share. We can share some of the frustrations, some of the pain, some of the sadness. And at least as a team, we can help each other out. Having an interdisciplinary team where we can all collaborate together, turn to each other for guidance on how to best help the patient, how to best help that family. That is extremely helpful for us as an individual. So as a physician, I know I'm not alone. I, I have a team. I work closely also with my fellow physician colleagues because um, they understand um, this kind of medicine so well that they can relate to what I could be going through as an individual. So we support each other a lot. But then, you know, it's one thing to have an interdisciplinary team to turn to, to get some help and guidance and support. But it's also up to us as individuals to find how we can deal with all of the suffering that we're faced with. And I'm still learning. I've been doing this for over 23 years, and I'm still finding that I, I need to, to learn and to adapt and to find new ways of doing things to keep myself psychologically, but also physically as well as possible to be, be able to continue doing this as long as possible. I, I love this. I, I think that once I retire, I think I'll probably go volunteer <laughs> because I'm enjoying doing what I'm doing so much. And I don't know that I will ever want to quit, but it is a question of, of finding in oneself also techniques and ways of being able to continue doing this.
Thank you. That really resonates well. And I want to thank you for telling us about the need for that nuanced and balanced psychological mental well-being. And also the importance of the interdisciplinary team that can help you and promote that you know, well-being in our practice for patients, but also personally in our lives. I did want to ask you, how do you personally maintain wellness, both physical and psychological? And what lessons have you learned over the years throughout your work that you might think uh, would be useful for students? So some of the very important things that I would tell medical students right now is to make sure that your personal relationships are always encouraged. Make sure you stay in contact with your siblings, with your parents, your grandparents. Make sure you reach out to your friends and get together with them, plus or minus pandemic. Still, there are ways of of being with friends so that you have these important personal supports that are there. And it can't be always about medicine. Sometimes it's about, you know, going out to a movie, going out to a show, doing something that is not medicine related, not even talking about the job, because we are more than just medicine. We are also individuals who still need to grow and discover things and explore. So I would say, number one, make sure you maintain these very important contacts in your life maybe even develop some new ones so that you you have these supports in your life to keep get you out of medicine every once in a while i think it's it's a very important part we need to stay physically active the mind body connection it really is there so whether it be nice long walks out in nature i have a dog so that she can walk me <laughs> and force me out twice a day. I even get to socialize in the dog park. Can you imagine that? So (laughs) the dog for me has been important, but I think for other people, it might be going to the gym and getting to know people there. But the the keeping active physically, I think is is also part of the key to to, um, building resilience and wellness. Psychologically, I, I'm, I've already alluded to it. Taking those breaks, taking the breaks from medicine is important. Initially, my husband and I would take, because my husband is also a doctor, we would maybe take one or two weeks off per year and we were invincible. We could keep on going and going and do more and more. And it's really easy when you love your job to want to stay there a little bit longer, to be able to finish this and do this in detail. And you just get taken up by the job. And then over time, my husband said, you know what, I need more breaks. And I'm like, okay. So we started taking an extra week and then an extra week and then an extra week. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God, we're taking so many extra vacation weeks. And I was feeling a little bit guilty about taking this extra time. And then I realized that when I wasn't taking it, like during this pandemic, where you just can't really go too far from home, I started feeling that no, I I actually need these weeks, it allows me to to really literally take a break, and um, re energize, rebuild my psychological batteries, and physical batteries, 
so that when I can go back to work, I, I feel 100% and happy to be there. When I wake up in the morning, I'm happy to go to work. The majority of the time, not 100% of the time, that's not possible, but the majority of the time. So I think part of the realizing over time that we need to take these breaks, that we need to take time for ourselves, we need to take time for our families, there shouldn't be guilt associated to that. And our colleagues who need just as much time and energy to rebuild their own batteries and re-energize, well, we need to be there for them. So when they need to take their vacation, it's like, oh yeah, go ahead, take that vacation. You're gonna feel so much better afterwards. And I'm here for you to cover for your calls. I'm here to cover your patients, et cetera. So it's, it's, um, it's a give and take in a team where we need to make sure that each and every one of us is getting that time. And there's, there shouldn't be any guilt, no guilt tripping other people. And we shouldn't feel guilty ourselves about taking that time so that, you know, each and every one of us goes to that job, that very important job, and, and do the best for the people that we're serving, and to keep going day in, day out, because it's, it's heavy. We're doing some pretty heavy duty work, but it's beautiful work. And so we, we just need to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves. The other thing that my husband would tell you, and I've tried doing different things myself, uh, is to find hobbies or things that you're passionate about. My husband is very passionate about surfing, and you can do that in Montreal, believe it or not. We go kite surfing. So it's both physical, but it's kind of also really exciting. And uh, when we go on our holidays away from Montreal, we usually have a kite surfing kind of trip happening. I would say for some people, it might be painting or drawing, it could be writing poetry, it could be about reading. Uh, something that you have as a hobby that you're having fun with, where you can forget about everything and you're engrossed in that activity, that is an amazing thing to have. I, I like to cook as well when I'm cooking or gardening. I forget about pretty much everything. And these are the mental breaks that we need to be able to go back to the work and say, oh yeah, but I love my job. <laughs> so hobbies are good. So I really appreciate uh, you sharing all of that with us because I think these are really important conversations for people in medicine to have, particularly now, but always. So shifting back to your professional work in, in palliative care, there's a component of palliative care that we haven't yet spoken about, but it seems so intimately related, and that's grief. Both palliative care and grief share the phenomenon of loss and suffering and this idea of trying to diminish pain. And I'm wondering how you define grief, which seems to be so interconnected into the work that you do. So, I, you know, what we don't often realize is that grief for our patients start at the moment of their diagnosis. Um, they, they suddenly grieve the idea of being a healthy person. Um, 
they might undergo treatments that change their bodies and now they're grieving the look of their physical aspect. As time goes by, they're grieving not being able to fulfill some of their usual social functions, uh, which might be, you know, being, you know, the breadwinner in the family or having a, a big role with respect to the rearing of the children. So as time goes by, they have different losses. And as they're grieving these different losses, they learn to live with this loss and the new person that they are, the new life that they have. And basically grieving is learning to adapt to all of these losses. Towards end of life, patients become very weak, uh, very dependent on others. And they can also project a time when they will no longer be here. And so they have to also grieve the fact that they are no longer autonomous and that they are going to die. And they, they grieve the notion of being there with their families, um, of not being able to support them, etc. So all of these things are normal processes that people go through throughout their lifetime. As, and certainly from the moment they have a diagnosis all the way until their very last breath. Now, some people do this beautifully and some people have a really hard time and they might need some psychological help. Some of them might even need some medications because unhealthy grieving, pathological grieving is when they can't move on from this loss and learn to adapt to this new self, this new level of functioning. Um, and when you get stuck, you don't live well and you're suffering a whole lot. So being able to recognize when a patient gets stuck in that grieving process is, is important. That's why very often in the DSM-5, we talk about the notion of, you know, uh, two, at least two weeks of, you know, um, having this psychological suffering, um, which might be anxiety, which might be depression, which might be an adjustment disorder with anxiety or depression or whatever. When we see that normal grieving seems to stall, then, then they're needing a lot of help. For the families, we know that there is grieving as well. They are seeing their loved one not being the person that they always were. Ideas of, you know, my mom will always be there for me. My sister has been my best friend and she's been the person that I've, you know, turned to my entire life to be able to, you know, get support and guidance. So they're also grieving as this illness process occurs. And in palliative medicine, because we are supporting 
the family as well. It is our role as well to see who is having lots of issues and needing more support to be able to process what's happening and learn to adapt and also help them realize that there will be further deterioration in their loved one's health and help them see what coping mechanisms they've used in the past and how they can use these new co these coping mechanisms again and maybe develop some new ones so it's all of that uh, grieving is is big we don't we think often of grieving when we are you know grieving somebody who's died but it's actually starts way earlier on and as healthcare professionals um, we can listen listen to the patient listen to the families and support them and maybe help them find answers in themselves about how to keep on going with living despite these losses so that they can live better in the moment and for the family members get ready for the future i find that in my role as physician i try to take the family member by the hand and walk them through the things that they can expect to see happening with their loved one so that it's not a shock at the end they can see themselves for themselves as the patient is transitioning towards end of life yes this is what the doctor and the nurses have been preparing me for i'm seeing it this is the reality rather than you know have blinders and just get to the end of life and not have had a chance to say and do the important things they want to say and do with their loved one being able to prepare them allows them to fulfill those important things that they need to fulfill now before the end because there are unfortunately it's there are moments where it's a little too late right you can try to somehow help a grieving bereaved family member but if they might feel guilt or they might feel there are unfulfilled things that they haven't had a chance to do when their loved one was alive. So it's a lot about preparing them for all of that and helping them accomplish these things. It certainly sounds like the act of providing palliative care in so many ways that there's, there's an art to it as well as you hold grief. And it's interesting because as students, we, we learn a lot about what palliative care is and what it isn't, but we don't learn a lot about this art of holding grief. And I'm not sure it's something that you can necessarily learn from a lecture, but perhaps it's something that you learn through practice and through being with patients over and over again. And I'm just wondering if you spoke about preparing patients and their family members for this process. Is there any wisdom that you want to pass on to us as students when we find ourselves in those situations? Are there particular questions that are really pertinent and really meaningful um, or even just a way of being that is useful in those moments to help prepare patients for and help them experience grief in a way that's useful? Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. 
you guys are learning a whole lot about communication, communication skills, giving, breaking bad news. You know, all of those things, those tips on good communication, it's, they're all really important. Your patient needs to feel, and the family members need to feel that you care about them. And what's most important in good communication also is the being there and listening. Good communication is not about the words that you're gonna say as much as at least being, a, being able to be a good listener. And when you can reflect to the patient that you're listening to them and that you've got their best intentions at heart that you want to be honest with them and give them, give them the information that they're ready for. You know, the spikes model, you know, when you're asking for invitation to, to give information. Well, that's all so important in being able to hold that grief. If they feel that you're there ready to listen, they will share. And sometimes being able to just be with them, sometimes silently holding a hand or putting a, a hand on their arm and just the being there will allow you as a physician to support them. That's sometimes that is all they need. Sometimes they need reassurance as well. And as you explore the emotions, that's also part of the spikes model, <laughs> exploring emotions, right? They'll be able to tell you what's what they're concerned about and, and that might help you provide them with the answers that they're needing and put together a plan of what it is that they need to be supported. And, and maybe that means getting the social worker in, maybe getting the music therapist in, maybe getting a, a spiritual care worker in, so all these different things that can be so helpful. One of the things that we forget about in our communication is also our nonverbal communication. And if you sit with the patient, your body is going to be more relaxed. You don't need to, you know, be jittering. <laughs> When you're there, physically comfortable, listening to that patient or the family member, they will feel that they're getting your full attention. And again, they will feel like you're caring about them. So you will be recipient of whatever it is that they're going through because they'll feel that trust that connection with you to be able to share. So sitting, being comfortable in the being there. But there is also something that I teach my students and residents. Sometimes communication is also about being a, a good actor. We are human beings with our own values and our own emotions, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes we are making some judgment calls on what we're hearing, but the patient or the family member 
shouldn't feel like they're being judged. And so we, we've got to keep the poker face. <laughs> and, and our gestures and our facial reactions should look like we are caring and interested and that we want to help. Even if sometimes inside of our own minds, uh, we're feeling disturbed somehow. And so there is a little bit of acting involved so that we can appear impartial and non-judgmental and best help our patients and, and or their family members continue to speak with us and share with us and feel supported by us. And if part of resiliency, wellness, etc., and I know you guys are also getting a whole lot on mindfulness, is being able to see how we react when we become, you know, the recipient of, of information that we may not always feel comfortable with and see, okay, well, will I be able to continue working with that patient? That patient needs to be served by somebody who can be supportive. Can I still be supportive to that person? Where is this coming from? Why am I reacting that way? And is there my initial unpleasant feeling? Is, is that because the, the patient is going through some difficulties that I'm finding unpleasant or, you know, personality traits that make it difficult? And then sometimes I kind of like try to look at it from a, a, an even more objective light and say, okay, you know, this person is reacting or behaving in this fashion. Is it because they're suffering inside? Are they having so much difficulty coping with what's going on that they're lashing out or whatever it is? And if I can look at it from that more objective aspect, can I then, with my compassionate heart, go and take care of that person and still be support and be maybe even more supportive to them because I'm understanding that yes, they're acting out, but they're acting out because they're in pain. So there's, there's a whole lot that we need to try to have happening when we are recipient of all of that information, that suffering, sometimes behaviors that um, we might find distasteful or, or unpleasant and be honest with ourselves about can we still help that person in front of us because they are a suffering person. Mm. We wanted to ask you, healthcare professionals are often faced with diff different forms of loss. It may be a patient who has lost a follow-up or one who passes away. What advice do you have for students facing loss? We cannot control everything. As physicians, there are things that we are in control of. They're mostly our own actions and potentially reactions. <laughs> but we are not able to control everything. And we shouldn't feel guilty. And our frustrations should also be mitigated with the notion that we are not in control of everything. 
So we have to be compassionate with ourselves and realize that, yes, we are not perfect. Medicine is not perfect. Our patients are not perfect. Their families are not perfect. Our healthcare system isn't perfect. And there's only so much that we can do to fix things. Now, we can take on a role of being a role model to try to have an effect on those people around us. We can take on a bigger role of being a social activist or advocating within our system for improvements. And kudos to those people who actually do that. But somewhere in there, there is a limit to how much we can do and how much we can take on. So it is about accepting this. And I remember being a, a resident and seeing a patient suffer at end of life because back then you didn't give any opioids until you actually had a diagnosis. And we found out that she had multiple myeloma with a whole bunch of bony mets and just maybe a week before she died. And so she was allowed to have prescriptions of opioids only in the last week of life, even though her pain had been just as bad for like a whole month before that. So I suffered. I suffered from that. And I guess I'm making a change now by being both a palliative medicine physician, but also helping train future physicians on how to take care of people like that. So I am helping making these changes. But when I was a med student, what could I do? I was limited and I had to accept these limitations. So we can make changes, but we also have to accept that there are things that we cannot change. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, on that note, we wanted to inquire, do you have any final thoughts or words on anything that you think a student should know going into a palliative care rotation or elective? Well, I think you will learn a lot. A lot of students are scared about what it might be like to be facing death, to be seeing, witnessing an end of life and a death. It's, of course, a huge um, event in somebody's life when they're dying, in a family's life when they're losing a loved one. And so, yes, this is going to be a rotation where you will be confronted to a lot of emotions. But that's not a bad thing. I think, on the other hand, um, seeing how even a med student, not just a palliative physician, but a med student can have a positive impact on the patient and the family when they are nearing end of life. How gratifying that is. That is beautiful as well. So yes, it's a roller coaster of emotions, but that is part of being a human being. 
And for some of the med students, there was a bit of a challenge that they had coming into uh, palliative medicine. But I think overall, they gained so much about the understanding of how to accompany people and how to support, how to communicate, and also the, the medicine part of, you know, taking care of patients' symptoms. So it's a great rotation and which I think will serve the you, medical students, as future physicians, whatever discipline you end up going into, to be able to be able to apply the notions of good palliative primary care to all these people that you will be serving and just being able to be good physicians who take a look at that person in front of them, not the illness, not the disease in front of them, but that person in front of them and how to care for that person and maybe accompany the family members as well. That those are the notions that you will, that you'll be able to apply coming out of a palliative care rotation. I think that's such a beautiful note to end on, a reminder of the notion of seeing the patient as a whole person. Um, and that being one of the things that I, I'm sure that we will learn during our palliative care rotations. It's always so difficult to end these uh, fascinating and super important conversations. But I just wanted to thank you again for taking the time to chat with us because I really think this conversation has been so rich. We've talked about everything from maintaining our own wellness to, to also managing and, and holding the grief of others. So thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of your insights. It's been really wonderful. Well, Zoe and Ashkan, it's been a real pleasure for me to be able to share all of this with you. And I'm hoping that you're all going to get a chance to get a little taste of what palliative medicine is. This has been another episode of Mindfulness in Medicine, a podcast created for medical learners by medical learners at McGill University. Get show notes at themindfulmedicallearner.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, comment, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or send us a message through the contact page on themindfulmedicallearner.com.